Today, we're talking to Robert from Entrust about the future post-quantum landscape. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. I like technology. My background was engineering until the podcast happened. And I heard that we had an opportunity to talk a little bit about the post-quantum readiness. And I was thinking, what does that mean? Does that mean how do we design our systems not to get attacked by quantum computers? And that was where I kind of left it. And I said, I'll I'll just get on the call and ask Robert. So what is post-quantum readiness? Well, you've just mentioned that you're an engineer, so am I. Not an IT engineer, but with engineering backgrounds, we probably understand maths better than many. And cryptography is maths. And maths is what we you know, care about when we're thinking about algorithms and lengths of keys and cryptography and, and encryption keys and all of that. It's All that's behind it is maths. Now, quantum computers can do maths far quicker than computers today, which renders the current algorithms that we use vulnerable. Well, vulnerable, in other words, completely smashes them. So many of these algorithms that we rely on across our whole IT landscapes, I mean, they've been around since the 90s, and they've matured like good wine. Uh, you know, they get attacked, they get peer reviews, and algorithms get better and better with age, meaning the more use they get and therefore are not broken, the more confidence everyone has in them. So we're about to enter a phase where all of a sudden, and we're not exactly sure when, when quantum computers become uh, part of our daily lives or fall into the wrong hands, all that cryptography that we rely on across our IT will be broken, the public key encryption. So post-quantum cryptography are quantum computer-resistant algorithms. So these are newer algorithms that have been designed to be resistant to quantum computers. No one can ever claim that an algorithm is totally safe because you can't foresee the future. You can't foresee the cleverness of a new attack or uh, the way... AI can be used to accelerate the process of attack, you know, shortening the time it takes to to deliver, execute an attack. We can't we can't imagine yet what AI or even quantum computers could perhaps come up with. But for now, we know that the current public key encryption will be vulnerable. And therefore, we need to replace it, migrate to new cryptography based on the quantum-resistant algorithms. That's what it's all about. How long do we have? That's a brilliant question. Um, it's It's a question that is foxing the best minds in the world right now because we can look at the quantum developers, you know, the IBMs, the Googles, the Microsofts, and we can look at their acceleration of development, the breakthroughs they're making. You know, right now, IBM have got a quantum computer with 433 qubits. 
That's a really, really small computer by general purpose computing standards. We need quantum computers with thousands of qubits. So when we ask ourselves, how long do we have? Well, some people are saying, the most pessimistic are saying it's a generation away. The most aggressive predictions are still are within this decade, you know, like 2028, 20, 2027. 20, the average across all of the experts is probably around the end of the decade, maybe just after it, when we reach the point where quantum computers are essentially mainstream. That's how long we have in the commercial world. When you start looking at military and intelligence, you've got other factors. You have state actors that are developing, that perhaps already using quantum computers, maybe small ones. We don't know. They may be a lot bigger than we're hearing about. And therefore, you've got to assess that risk. You know, if we think commercially it's end of the decade, but there could be people faster than that then we kind of have to plan, you know, for our security before when we think it is, because you don't want to wait till the last minute. And it really also, the, the other fact around the migration is the scale of the change. I mean, it's wholesale. All this public key encryption that we use across our IT landscapes, in our web browsers, in our, in our mobile phones, in our desktops, in our servers applications, in our connected cars, in our wind farms, you know, everything that has a CPU uses public key encryption, cryptography. Therefore, there's a lot to change. So if with that scale of change and with a less predictable time frame, Cautious people in the world will be saying, best start now. Let's at least start preparing for how big this change is and how am I going to tackle it? So will the operating systems start shipping with a quantum resistant public key system or how will that play well, out? Well, again, uh, you know, it's a great question because there's, for those in the know, they understand that cryptography lives at all layers in the stack. You know, the, the chip itself, BIOS, uses cryptography. The operating system, the applications that run on the operating system, the networks that connect to the computer, the server, the, you know, whatever it is, the device. All those things are using public key cryptography. So it's not a matter of changing one because it instantly becomes incompatible with all the other parts of the stack. Cryptography is a bit like, yeah, it's really an ecosystem of compatibility. So you need all layers in the stack to support the same algorithm. Oh, Ideally, really? obviously at the same time, because they talk to each other. And because of that complexity, it really isn't a matter of clicking a, 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 a switch and saying, right, switch to post-quantum. You have to implement it at all layers in the stack, check the compatibility, check the performance of the resulting ecosystem. Because some of these algorithms that are coming 
are heavier weight. They use bigger keys. They create bigger hashes. That puts more stress on the computers. And these aren't quantum computers. This is this is quantum-resistant cryptography running on the computers we have today. Because we're not suddenly going to eradicate all of our classical computing and replace with quantum. That will take years and years and years. And you may not need want to or need to or could afford to. So there's so many kind of factors in the the, the process of change, the planning for the change, that I, I'm, I'm seeing many organizations kind of underestimating the size of the problem that's coming. Who's going to be the one that drives the change? Is it going to be the chip makers at the lowest level? Well, they're already creating chips with these new algorithms. So let me take a, a quick step back. So the new algorithms um, have been the result of a NIST competition, the National Institute of Standards and Technology in America. So they have been operate they've been operating a competition. And I believe it started with 78 mathematicians submitting candidate algorithms way back in 2015, 2016. So this isn't kind of a new thing. This has been going on for seven, eight years. And we're now in 2022 and 23 seeing the outcomes, the output of that process of testing, peer review. And we, we ended up, for example, there are four candidate algorithms for public key encryption that were published last July by NIST. Those are the algorithms that you choose from if if you need to do public key cryptography. You have a choice of four, and they have their pros and cons. Some of them will be good for some use cases. Some others will be better for other use cases. And as I mentioned, algorithms can be heavier weight. They can require more processing power. So if we take an example of a connected car, a car is manufactured with up to, what well, I'm, I'm assuming, a, a, a thousand CPUs. Mm -hmm. Some of them, the, the most modern electric cars, have that many chips in them. Every one of those chips is well, most of those chips is limited in computing power. So there's only some of those candidate, candidate algorithms you can use on them. The chip manufacturers that, say, supply the automotive companies are predicting that they'll start releasing post-quantum crypto-supporting chips sometime next year, maybe 2025. So right now, cars are coming off production lines hard-coded with classical cryptography. So that's one sector that really are having now to think very hard about how do they protect those cars that are being produced with, let's call them pre-quantum chips. They have to work out other ways of, of mitigating the risk in five, 10 years' time because a car's going to be on the road for 20 years. There are other industries that have a similar um, a challenge with long-term devices, long-term data. One of the immediate threats that organizations are having to tackle is what's called harvest now, decrypt later. 
sounds very mm. complex. Oh, yeah. I mean, what it is, it is, you know, my information, the Robert Han, is my personal data, my social security number, my medical records and everything else that's as valuable in 10 years as it is today. So if you steal it encrypted today, if you're patient enough, you can decrypt it when you can get your hands on a quantum computer in a few <laughs> years' time. So harvest now, be patient, decrypt later. And there are many industries, in fact, <clears throat> arguably every company in the world that holds HR records is susceptible to harvest now, decrypt later. Obviously, the targets are going to be the bigger organizations with you know, larger number of <laughs> larger number of employees, bigger aggregations of personal data. But there are other industries too. If you think about healthcare, government, public sector, public sector holds records on me and you for our entire lives, and and more. You know, a few years after, um, and those healthcare records are worth ten times as much than credit card data on the dark web. So public sector actually have one of the biggest quantum problems or harvest now decrypt later problems because their data is that valuable, you know, for identity fraud, healthcare fraud, VAT fraud, you know. So public sector is one of them. Um, insurance, banking, they hold data for a long time. I've had my bank account for 20 years. Uh, don't tell my bank, but I don't intend to change. <laughs> <laughs> we'll keep them on their toes. <laughs> yeah, please keep them on their toes. So I'm likely to have the same bank account in 10 years' time. They hold loads of information on me for the last 20 years of transactions and everything else about me, my, maybe my mortgage and my, uh, my dependents and everything. So, so there's another industry with a harvest now, decrypt later challenge that you really have to be thinking about today because that data, even if you have encrypted it, you've followed best practice, zero trust, you've made sure your data at rest, in transit, in use is all encrypted and protected. If it's protected by public key encryption, which it probably is in a lot of cases, you have a problem. Is this the only, is this the main focus of interest? I saw you had north of several thousand employees. Is this the, the only thing you do or do you do other things as well? We do a lot. I mean, our portfolio is incredible, really. We touch many parts of everyone's lives. So your, your wallet will be full of cards printed and personalized on Entrust equipment. You, oh, you, cool. wouldn't, you wouldn't know that. I mean, the personalization process is an electronic software-driven process. Obviously, the physical printing is a physical printer and all the security features built into the card, you know, were, were created on Entrust equipment, or most of them. So there's one area that's Entrust is touching your life. Other areas, if you travel, you go through an airport, you may receive a, uh, a digital travel credential, which has been personalized and issued using Entrust software and issuing software and 
and things. You may be using elements of our biometric capabilities within that to provide what what we call safe and seamless travel. You know, almost walking through an airport and checking in as you walk through it. Not you know, no turnstiles, no gates, and you know that's kind of a no vision. security. Yeah, they've well, already they zapped there, us. There's before. always security, <laughs> but it it's not it's not pervasive. So there's a, there's another area that we operate in. We operate very much uh, in enterprise security, cyber security. You know, logging into your bank, getting through the door into your office, logging onto your computer using your smartphone or. Uh, using passwordless capability that allows you to do it in a really slick way. I mean, I'll I'll give you a great example. One of the um, the COVID hospitals in the UK used passwordless because they can't. They use kiosk PCs. Many doctors and nurses in a clinical area, you can't be putting cards into readers or one-time codes and. And things you've got to, it's got to be seamless. You may be in an emergency. So you, you walk up to the computer and you get logged on, you walk away. And that's because you're carrying a very smart credential on your device and Bluetooth and everything is being used securely to, to log you on. There's so many aspects in, in our lives that we may not realize, you know, Entrust is kind of behind it is delivering the security. And how did you get involved in the post-quantum readiness part of Entrust? Were you already at Entrust or did you come from somewhere else? How did that work? So I was, um, I ran a company with a, a, a few others, uh, which Entrust acquired a few years ago. And we were a managed cryptography company in the UK. Interestingly, on the, the, we operated from a military armory building with no windows you know, it's part of our data center infrastructure at Entrust, of course, now. It was where they filmed Star Wars, not in <laughs> our, our facility. We'll say that. The, we'll say that, yeah. Well, <laughs> it was just over the hill. So um, the ex-missile uh, silos was the Battlestar base in the latest Star Wars film. Oh, so and cool. you know, people were flying drones over the top. But they, but I'm giving you a picture here of a highly secure facility, and it's that kind of security that's critical when you're dealing with, you know, national security of data, of issuing passports, of protecting national IDs, protecting citizens, protecting banking customers, or or just protecting the data of an enterprise that you know, you work for or all different types from all different sectors. So I came from there and I kind of grew up with cryptography in my veins. I loved the mathematics of it and I loved the engineering side of it. And I kind of, as we all do, fall into a, uh, a, a role, which was a managed cryptography company. But way back when I was in the payments and banking, uh, bank cards, industry but it's very similar all these things are built on trust you know cryptography is there to give me a new trust to give you know me the confidence to continue banking with who i bank with or me as a customer to give confidence of sharing my data and i'm sharing it with a legitimate company that's going to take care of it 
for me as a government and protecting public sector citizen data. All of this, you know, is based on on providing that confidence and trust, and really often very much at the kernel of that is cryptography, and that's that what is what gets me up in the morning. You know, making a difference to so many people's lives, and they may not even realize it. How will we know when this has happened? So you've got different niches, different segments of the market pushing the technology forward for a variety of reasons. Like, I don't have a lot of experience here. I definitely don't have a lot of experience in cryptography. I've just the basic bare minimum. But I did get to do a couple interviews with some founders of some, you know, like Ripple and some other large cryptocurrencies. And they were telling me about how, like as as to what you said, that they were the crypto resistant algorithms were slower. They haven't implemented them yet. They they have a variation of it where if things went crazy overnight, they could flip the switch and then now they have the the quantum resistant algorithm, although the transactions would be slower. But I'm sitting here thinking like, that's everyone's having the conversation about when it's going to happen. And I'm more interested in how do we know when it has happened? Because let's say that you're in a lab with a friend like Robert Suter over at IBM. He's running one of their, you know, he wrote Dancing with Qubits. He's a super cool guy. And, you know, he's over there pushing stuff forward. What if it's one of his, you know, assistants, lab assistants or engineering peers discovers it that day that they discover it? Like, how do you know when that's going to happen? I think we'll know because this has so much hype and noise around it that the company that achieves quantum supremacy is going to tell the world. So that is quantum supremacy, when you achieve the ability to break public key? No, no, quantum supremacy is is the ability to provide quantum computing for commercial grade. You know, whoever wins that race, Google, Microsoft. They already have that though, right? They do, but, but not at scale. So as I said earlier, the, the quantum computers that we know about today are kind of teaching very small computers, you know, without being technical, they're not big enough to use in general purpose computing. Many of them have to be operated in very controlled environments and things, you know, I guess quantum supremacy comes when somebody releases a full scale quantum computer that can replace general purpose servers and infrastructure that we see used in large enterprise, in our digital services, clouds, and whatever. So when they we can know be one that, and the same, right? It could be. I mean, we know that the cloud providers are in a big race to provide quantum computing as a service. And of course they are, because if you can provide computing hundreds of times faster than current computing, there are so many applications that become possible, you know, faster drug development, quicker trading, cleverer trading. You know, the banks are really interested in this for lots of reasons. One of them is absolutely on the trading side of their business. You don't even need to trade though. Once you get them, just go take all the cryptocurrency you want. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's interesting. You you joke about that. I presented at a global blockchain conference a couple of months ago, and I, my topic, my chosen topic that day, obviously was was quantum, post quantum. And when I said that blockchain 
the wallet is based on public key cryptography, having just said quantum computers can break it. There were many, many white faces in the room, kind of, yeah, I, you mentioned some companies that have already realized this is a threat. There are many out there that won't realize this is a threat, that all those wallets are susceptible. So, you know, in the whole world of crypto and Ethereum, they've got to change, you know, all those blockchain and those decentralized identity systems that use wallets and and things, they've all got to change. There's so many parts in our lives that quantum supremacy will impact it in many good ways. But of course, what I'm talking about today with you are the many bad ways, unless you prepare. So help me understand this better. Right now they're at 400 and something change qubits. We need to be worried once they can put an operating system on a quantum computer, like a traditional, a class, we'll call it a classical operating system on a quantum computer. Can, and that would be several thousand qubits. So the only way they could break encryption is once, like the only way the computer would be powerful enough to break encryption is if the computer is powerful enough to run a classical operating system. Is that true or false? I have to say, I'm not technical enough to tell you how you do it. What I do know is that there are people out there, genuine people, you know, people with the right intentions that are already saying we have broken RSA algorithm with oh, really? a quantum computer. They are, but the problem is, I mean, the, the Chinese claim they had a few months ago, it only becomes relevant and worrisome if they publish how they did it. So the clever cryptographers around the world and can look carefully at the proof of how they did it and go, actually, that that's genuine. They did break it. There was an organization recently that came to me at a show, a, an IoT world show in Barcelona, and they said, we've just broken RSA. And my response was, wow, have you published how you did it? Because that's the right way to do it. And they haven't yet, but they intended to publish it through a standards bodies part of. And how long ago was this? This was what, three months ago. Can you introduce um, us to those people? <laughs> well, they'd actually, the they'd actually used a IBM quantum simulator. Uh, <laughs> and they'd said they'd used 78 qubits and they'd yeah. broken this key. Now, it only, as I say, it's only, it's only worth attention when all the experts around the world have looked at it and, and looked at their code, looked at the way they did it and said, no, they genuinely have. I'm not going to get, I'm not going to give away my source like any good journalist, but it genuinely happened about three months ago. And we're, we were in that same standards body because we're publishing ways to migrate to post-quantum. We've, we've oh, pioneered nice. an, er, uh, an area of um, called PQT Hybrid Bridge. Bear with me. Um, so this whole process of change requires you to switch from classical cryptography to post-quantum, and that process is called cryptogenity. And it's a, pr- it's a process that involves not just technology, 
it involves planning, process, policy, training, you know, training people of how to use the new technology, writing procedures around how to operate it. You know, it's not just a tech thing. And, and quite a lot of people in the world think it is a tech thing. Uh, you know, I'm not being unfair to a lot of the startups that are entering this space, but they really do have a tech-centric approach. And cryptography, managing cryptography and managing cryptography change is a people, technology, and process thing. All those three things have to come together to enact the change. So when you're switching to post-quantum cryptography, wouldn't it be great if you can have systems that support both? And you can tell the system one day, use classical, and next day, use classical. So if you think back to what I said about crypto operating at all layers in the stack, you know, if the operating system has been upgraded, then the other parts need to be upgraded too before you can fully switch over to post-quantum. So wouldn't it be great if you could buy an operating system that had that magic green button that allowed you to toggle between classical and post-quantum? It's called PQT Hybrid Bridge. And the, the principle of it is that you can implement technology solutions and Entrust are already pioneering this. One of our engineers has written the certificate profile published through IETF. A colleague of mine called Mike Ounsworth, he won an award recently uh, via Microsoft. And, uh, or he might be nominated. Um, it, we might still be in We'll say that phase. he won. Yeah, we'll yeah say let's he say won. he won. Yeah. He deserves to win. <laughs> but this hybrid bridge principle allows you to, for us, it allows us to if provide a customer a PKI where you have a magic switch and you can tell all of the endpoints that are relying on the digital certificates, the PKI issues, you can say, keep using classical, keep using classical. And then when everything around that endpoint is ready to go, you toggle and you say, mm -hmm. use Dilithium one of the four candidate algorithms, or use Sphinx Plus, or use Kyber Crystals. And there's one other secret advantage to Hybrid Bridge. Not only that you can carefully make the change at all layers in the stack until you're totally ready and press go. You know, if you think of these huge landscapes, it's not a thing, you're not going to do it all overnight. It's going to take years. So you move one thing over at a time, and, and so on. But there is an, a, a real secret advantage. You could actually implement it with two of the NIST candidates. So you could, you could have Dilithium running. And let's say Dilithium becomes vulnerable. It's a young algorithm. It's only been around for a few years. Some of the algorithms we're used to, like RSA, have been around for 25, 30 years. And they have that maturity like good wine. We're confident in them. We're not going to be confident in these new NIST algorithms, NIST competition algorithms. They weren't developed by NIST, but in the competition for many, many years. So we may find a vulnerability in the future, but wouldn't it be brilliant if you had a choice? So you can toggle from classical to one of the NIST algorithms and then also 
toggle to another NIST algorithm if that first one you chose becomes vulnerable. Brilliant insurance policy, great future-proofing, pioneered by entrusters. But we're not just us. We're part of a standards body. We don't, you know, we, we're not making a, a, a singular claim that this is our idea. This is the right. process of very clever people developing an approach that, you know, the standards bodies in Germany, BSI, have said it's the only way to migrate because there's so much crypto agility we have to tackle. Why wouldn't you use this mechanism that allows you that timing, that ability to go, right, I'm good to go, let's switch. And that starts with the chip makers implementing that? Well, it starts actually with everyone that... um Everyone that is uh, providing solutions with cryptography in public key cryptography, then the ideal scenario is they all implement hybrid bridge. Now, not all of them will, but if you have two thirds of the ecosystem supporting hybrid bridge and you're waiting for that piece of firmware from the chip maker that makes the braking system in your connected car, then at least you've got two thirds in place and you're just waiting for that final piece of the jigsaw and you implement that and then everything's good to go. And the market will push them there. Once they see they it's starting I to mean, turn, yeah. It just makes such common sense. I mean, how many times in our lives has a big bang switch over been successful? I mean, in fact, I have to say, I heard a funny story completely off track. But I think in 1971 in Sweden, they switched the side of the road they drive on at midnight. <laughs> I don't know whether you've heard this story. But can you imagine no. the planning that went into, right, move over the other side of the road. I mean, that's, I think, the only big bang situation I've ever heard of in my life where it's kind of been successful. Like maybe people crashed, maybe people... Oh, you know, yeah. But... Maybe there weren't many cars on the road then. But it, That's true. You know, if you, you can't switch cryptography in a big bang way, you know, or you can't have the, as you can't have hundreds and thousands of test systems just waiting for that day when you can implement it in production and all in post quantum cryptography just doesn't make common sense. This, this measured process of change using hybrid bridge. I mean, it, it comes into software development too. So, you know, fr from today or at least from tomorrow when people hear this podcast and I say, tell your DevOps to start developing with post-quantum cryptography in mind, stop developing solely for classical cryptography, people will thank me. Okay, that's sensible. Why don't I build in that future-proof now? Start today. 100%. It sounds like, yeah, I mean, if they, if they could, I'm sure they would have done it from the beginning. True. I mean, there are a few other, I'm, I'm simplifying it slightly because some, uh, you know, cryptography is built around, you create algorithms, which we have, and you can't just pick them up and implement them. There's a whole standards process around cryptography. So the IETF that, uh, you know, maintain and control the standards for many things on the internet in digital, all of those standards that 
were written for classical cryptography need updating mm. and they need to publish them and those new standards need peer review everyone needs to be yeah there's no errors in there release version 1.0 those standards are actually only starting to trickle out you know the NIST competition last july we're now starting to see early versions of standards which then allows companies like ours and and others to implement the cryptography in a standards way now we already have implemented these algorithms in some of our solutions we're providing them as early adopter versions pre-standards but the moment we see completed full versions of the standards absolutely we'll be getting these hybrid solutions in production version out the door in the hands of our customers to to do their testing and migration to do their post quantum readiness planning to implement if they have a harvest now decrypt later problem they might need that right now do you believe that the good guys are going to figure it out before the bad guys I don't know. I was presenting at a CISO forum in London six months ago, and I was alongside a CISO from UK military, Ministry of Defense. And we were talking that that it was a panel and someone in the audience said, is Harvest now decrypt later real? And before I got to say, I believe so, that my colleague, my, my fellow panelists alongside me said, absolutely, it's already happening in military and intelligence. So it is real. It may require huge amounts of resources, state level capabilities and resources to, to do it today. But, you know, how long before some of those, those people in those entities start to come out and provide it? To the bad guys. So I think to answer the question, you know, just my personal opinion, I think they'll run side by side. I don't think there'll be that much advantage in time from the good guys over the bad guys because of who's developing quantum computers already today. Yeah. So human behavior, I'm sure throughout your journey in leadership and family and all of that, you obviously experience human behavior. I'd say there's a majority of, a lot of people, a meaningful amount of people that wait to the last minute on everything. Yeah. So I'm curious, like let's say today some bad guys figure it out. Boom. Just this afternoon, hypothetical, uh, some attack group in uh, some adversarial country figures it out, right? Uh, They've got a number of, avenues to pursue would we then hear on the evening news that seven million bank accounts have been hacked and like like what what would it actually express itself as to the general public well i mean if the data is encrypted and the data is stolen encrypted you have you have followed best practice today i mean that's the recommendation encrypt your data i mean it's not as straightforward as that you know, data moves, data is at rest, data is in use. And, you know, and then trust provides solutions for kind of all of that for encrypting your data, but yet keeping it available when it's needed to the right people. I mean, the whole zero trust thing is based on principle of least privilege and 
never trust or was verified. So you always make sure that Joel is Joel before he has allowed access to the data, but we only allow you access to data you're allowed to see, principle at least privilege. Yeah, why would we give you all the data? So let's come back to the question about the, you know, if the data's encrypted and it's stolen, you may not know it's stolen. You may not know, it might not hit the news for seven, 10 years until they have their hands on a quantum computer to decrypt that data. Yeah, and that's when they hold you to ransom. Well, I'm sure that's happening all day, every day. I mean, that... I was thinking about that if, like two years ago when I heard the concept of write once, read never. You know, that's when I got introduced when I was learning about some storage stuff about people monitoring traffic and storing it and saving it uh, for when they can decrypt it. But let's say like that I, in my head so far from this conversation, that's one issue. I think it's already happening. Obviously, you, what well, you told me, the mili- it's definitely happening in the military, which means it's probably likely yeah. happening here. Uh, but I'm saying like, let's say they decrypt it or they, they figure out, you know, how to decrypt the public key today. Like, let's say they do it this afternoon. I, are they really going to, they're going to go focus on the data they've already collected. They're not going to go after like the freshest data possible. I I have to say, I don't know how they work. They're going to go for the high biggest prize. Yeah. The, the the one that hurts the most, the reputational damage, the 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 financial loss, you know, the ransom that can be extracted because I've got your data and I've decrypted it, you know. And or I've like ransomware happens today, I've got your data and I've encrypted it and you can buy the key off me. You know, so I I couldn't really say. I mean, what I can say is the organizations that are taking notice, and it's actually surprising how many are. So I've been talking at conferences and CISO events and whatever for nearly two years on this. And the first time I presented, I said, right, show of hands, who has post-quantum cryptography as a risk on your risk register? No hands. Oh, yeah. really? Room of 30 CISOs, maybe 40, literally none. That was two years ago. I kit continually, I love asking the question because it gives me a good gauge. When I asked that question, I was in Australia uh, a week and a half ago. I asked that question more than two thirds. I'd say almost three quarters of that audience, all from security in, in big Australian organizations and government. All of them have post-quantum cryptography on their risk register, and most of them already had teams starting to look at what we call PQ readiness. And that PQ readiness journey, like many journeys, starts with understanding what you've got. You have to have an accurate cryptographic asset inventory. You need to know where you're using vulnerable cryptography. I mean, you should know that anyway for for good side hygiene because of zero trust uh, in maturity, you know, how can you do a risk assessment on something you don't know is there? So you start by uh, creating a accurate cryptographic asset inventory. We provide tools for that. We provide manual advice and governance advice for how to create your inventory. And then you look at your data. 
and you say, where's my big aggregations of data, my sensitive data, where's it flowing, where's it stored? And then you look at the cryptography assets that protect the most sensitive segments or parts of your data, your aggregated data. And you say, well, that ecosystem has got to be my number one. I'm going to look at that and work out how do I migrate that to post-quantum. And my second highest risk system, ecosystem, number two, three, and four. And that helps you plan because we can't suddenly magically create hundreds of crypto experts and people who are experts in the process of crypto change, the policy, the procedures, the skills, the planning, the testing, the migration, all of those things. You, you're just not going to have the resources all in one go. So once you've done that analysis, that asset inventory and that data asset, and you've mapped it and you have a plan, that's when you can start to what we call practice crypto agility. And there are ways to do that. We help organizations develop a slick, efficient procedure for, for the process of crypto agility. What do you need to think about when it comes to your suppliers? What do you need to think about when it comes to your people and skills? What do you need to think about when it comes to your policies, procedures, and compliance? What do you need to think about when it comes to the tech? So our scanning tool will find the asset and go, that's vulnerable. And then you know you've got a change to make on that piece of crypto. And you look all around it in the ecosystem and you get a seven other parts of that ecosystem that all need change. So we're really helping lots of big organizations kick off that process. And I'm really pleased that more and more hands are going up in the rooms I present in because this is a generational change and a kind of pretty wholesale problem we've got to tackle. Is the tool open so if someone can go download it right now or is it they connect with you and... Well, yeah, I mean, we provide it actually as part of an assessment service and that's the okay. best way to consume it because, you know, of course there's organizations out there with crypto experts. Entrust is full of crypto experts, but also full of people that know how to manage crypto. I mean, that's our business. We've been in it for 25 plus years. If we don't know how to manage it, then no one does. <laughs> um, so the process of managing crypto and the process of change of crypto is something that's kind of in our DNA at Entrust. And we can impart that knowledge and experience through a what we call the crypto health check to our customers. That can kick them off. They learn how to use the tool. They learn how to interpret the results. They learn how to interpret the risks. They learn how to work out the mitigations and what they should do next. And so it's a great way to develop the skill. I call it muscle memory. You've got to learn muscle memory of crypto agility when with quantum around the corner because you're going to be doing a lot of it. And you might as well use the time you've got now to get really good at crypto agility and also to consolidate and simplify. I mean, all those messy systems out there that you've kind of lived with just because they work are full of bad crypto, potentially. Now, why would you go to the hassle of migrating an already old and legacy system, you know, that you've just let run 
what you want to do is consolidate, simplify, and modernize now to make the whole journey easier. You know, if you've got less to change, you can have an easier life when it comes to the migration. Um, and there are products out there, you know, like Hybrid Bridge, a super modern key management system like our key control that enables, that builds in crypto agility. So I've been saying to organizations for quite some time now, use the breathing space we've got now to get your inventory, get your plan in place, practice crypto agility and consolidate and simplify what you've got. The less you have to change, the easier it is. It's common sense really, isn't it, Joel? How can people that are listening, let's say they want a crypto health check, how can they get one of those? Just just come to us. I mean, we we do these all the time to help organizations kickstart their post-quantum readiness. You know, one of the beauties of this, uh, of like a crypto health check, a snapshot on the system, is a lot of organizations are going to have to go to their boards and say, I think I need $50 million to manage this change. And the board will say, how can you be sure it's 50 million? And they go, I can't be. Well, go away and be more sure. So they go away and they come to us and say, can you do a crypto health check on one ecosystem or one part? And if you do it on one part, you can just extrapolate up. If you work out that that system's going to cost you $2 million to change in the whole process of change and testing and everything, and you've got 50 other systems like it, you know you've probably got a kind of $100 million problem. You know, not all at once, over the next three, five years. That's the kind of, you know, substance that you need to be going to get the money to fund the change from from boards and budget holders. So it's a, it, there's a kind of, there's a practical benefit to crypto health checks right now is to say, I'm going to spend a lot of money in the years to come and give some level of confidence on how big or medium that budget is going to have to be. Well, yeah, you, for everyone listening, just go to them before you go to your board. So you look smart to your board. <laughs> <laughs> True. Right. Yeah. I don't want to go uh, stand in front and be like, ah, oh, I need 50 million. I don't know why. It's like, just go to intro. Well, and be like, yeah. A lot of people don't know how to go about the sizing of the problem because you haven't them. had go to entrust.com. Well, contact you Robert. haven't had to do it before. You know, it's not, you know, changing crypto happens kind of slowly over the last couple of decades. We've never had a wholesale generational change like this. So people have never had to kind of justify this kind of spend because, you know, it's been much more discreet on a single system or, you know, it's never had to happen like that. You're probably not old enough to remember the Y2K problem, Joel, but I, I know am. exactly where I was the night of Y2K. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm 35, so I was like 11 or 12. I was at, yeah, I was at wow. Zach Knispel's house and nothing happened. Everyone was like so much tension. My dad's a, an engineer. So he did, uh, he was in the Air Force and they put the GPS systems into the stealth bombers. And at the time it was classified and 
all of that. So he grew up with a mix of hardware and software and he would take me to, to work with him. My other siblings did not come. And so I got a lot of exposure to a lot of different types of technology early on. So yeah, I remember them talking around the office about this whole Y2K thing. And then I remember them sharing stories because I think it was a, I think it was a weekend the, the yeah. on Y2K, but they were sharing stories like the next week at the office all about a couple uh, utility plants in certain parts of the country went down and, you know, to think about all the hype that was around it, if you happen to be in one of those cities where the power did go out, <laughs> you could have thought the world was entirely ending. Well, I mean, Y2K, I bring it up because Y2K was kind of the biggest underwhelming event. The mm -hmm. only reason it was underwhelming was millions upon millions of dollars had been spent on preparation and check-in and you know, every system had to be looked at. Kind of the same with crypto, uh, post-quantum crypto. You have to spend the money to look. But what we do know that's different is there will be change. Mm -hmm. You know, this time around, actually, every time you find public key cryptography, you're going to be changing it. So it, there's many more millions to be spent to implement the migration. That's the key difference. It's, it's probably the best thought to leave people with that are old enough to remember. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want to be respectful of your time. Yeah. So I, when this episode airs and people start talking to me about it, I'll have about a million more questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm open um, so to questions. I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. And we'll direct people to Entrust website and we'll put links to everything in the episode. But is there anything that we needed to get out there today? that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. I think I've really covered it. I mean, the, the, the key thing for everyone out there listening to this, don't delay. Start investigating the problem now because it's kind of, one of my colleagues has a great analogy. It's like all the, you're on an, a desert, an island, and all the villagers are on the beach. They're looking out to sea and they can see, see a storm approaching. No one knows how fast it's moving, what, direction it's coming in what we do know is it's going to hit at some point you know in a few hours in a few days and that's what really post-quantum readiness is we we know the storm's coming we know it's going to hit but we can't predict the time frame so logically you'd start battering down the hatches kind of right away start preparing now because if it did come in a few hours you're prepared you wouldn't just keep drinking your Shangri-Las and your Mai Tais and dancing on the beach until, oh, that storm's really close now, you know. And that's really a great analogy to think about. It's, it's to go away and go back to your organization and say, do we have a harvest now decrypt problem? If you do, give people like us a call. We've got good advice. We've got tools to help you. Have we started? sizing the post-quantum readiness. If not, have a look, start investigating, form a team, do a crypto health check, you know, and start to work out how big this is going to be for you as an organization. And finally, there are some really exciting quantum technologies out there. You know, you don't have to continue using public key cryptography that's quantum resistant, you may look at some of these brand new 
quantum key distribution technologies. Most people wouldn't think they're mature enough yet. A lot of them are proprietary, which puts a lot of people off. But, you know, there's probably some really cool stuff out there, you know, and I know some of our biggest customers are starting to look at some of those things, but they're very cautious. You know, they want comfort, safety in numbers. So get excited about that stuff. But right now, take a look, see how big it is for you and, and make sure you have a plan. That's my final comment. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.